ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to take this moment to say thank you for listening to the Real Rescue Podcast. It means a lot to me that you enjoy these stories as much as I do. Since the start of this podcast, we've had a lot of support from all over the world. It has been amazing. Now, we have companies joining our team that also want to say thank you for all that you are doing out there standing the watch. These companies are offering discounts on their products as a way to support the rescue community and those tuning into the Real Rescue Podcast. Just go to therealrescue.com, click on Sponsors, and see these incredible offers for yourself. This episode of the Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. Access. Because when lives are at stake and conditions are challenging, Clear communication is of the utmost importance. SR3 Rescue Concepts, because you don't know what you don't know. And Versalips, to be your best, you need to squat your best. Breeze Eastern, they dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. The Axness PNG Wireless ICS System can bring cutting-edge wireless intercommunication system technology to any aircraft. The PNG system can be fully integrated into an existing ICS system or can be carried on and off as a mobile base station. They can go anywhere, at any time, on any aircraft. Plus, with the strongest and most robust waterproof handheld on the market, this system can take a hit and keep working. Their wireless intercom systems are designed to enhance situational awareness through improved communication capability. This system brings superior noise canceling technology to eliminate rotor wash and engine noise from your ICS. The Axness PNG wireless system is currently deployed in more than 1,800 public safety, air ambulance, and search and rescue aircraft worldwide. I have personally used the Axness system in four different countries and on five different airframes. It is awesome. If you want more information, Contact them today at axnes.com. That's A-X-N-E-S.com. You just make sure you tell them Quinny sent me. SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help your helicopter training. They train daytime, nighttime, aerial firefighting, hoist, long line, fast rope, rappel, and more. They can assist your program with standardization and safety checks or just an FAA annual refresher. With the certified flight instructor pilots and experienced crew, they are ready to help your agency keep up to date with current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. Plus, right now, SR3 is offering 10% off anything in their web store with the promo code, all capital letters, REALRESCUE, R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. Plus, they are offering another 10% from their partners, Petzl, and their equipment 
All you got to do is send an email to info at sr3rescueconcepts.com. Mention this podcast, The Real Rescue Podcast, and they'll take care of the rest. And Versalist. When you're at the gym working on your squats, building your leg strength for the next rescue mission, depth matters. If you're like me, getting below parallel on your squats is tough. Well, allow me to introduce Versalifts Heel Inserts. These gems have become one of my new favorite accessories in my gym bag. Simply place them into your regular training shoe, either on top or underneath the insole, and bam! You've got a heel lift benefit of a weightlifting shoe, but the comfort and flexibility of your regular trainer. So the next time your workout just has heavy squats, grab your V2 strength inserts. Or how about a run, pull up, push up, air squat, and another run? Grab your V2 endurance insert. Or my own personal workout of running, clusters, and ring muscle up. Grab your original V2 inserts and go crush it. Check them out today at vlifts.com or on Instagram at Versalift. And when you're ready to get a few pair of your own, make sure you get your 10% off with the Real Rescue discount code. Squat well, friends. In this episode of The Real Rescue, we are joined by another U.S. Coast Guard pilot. This episode was super fun for me because we get to go over a couple of awards that he earned during his time in the Coast Guard. But to top it off, we ended it with a wonderful story and really the whole reason we do search and rescue are from moments like this. Him and his crew got a letter from one of the people that he rescued. It was amazing to hear and I'm so happy we got into the story. So please welcome our next guest, Mr. John Bartell. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Real Rescue. Man, I've got another United States Coast Guard pilot with me today. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John Bartell. How are you, sir? Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, you're welcome. I'm excited to talk to you today. Uh, I am really excited to have you on. It, it's kind of cool. The way you and I met is actually HAI, Heli Expo. Uh, we're kind of walking through the, the floor and next thing you know, we chatted up and I'm like, man, please come on and tell me some of these stories. And and you were, you were like, yeah, yeah, I'll come on. So no problem. I can talk with the best of them. <laughs> yes. Yes. With, with laughs all in between and stories all the way around. Um, it's going to be fun. You and I are actually going to have a, a bit of a longer conversation today, which is going to be fun because I have five in particular rescues that I want to hear about. Uh, and then anything else that you want to throw in there. And I, I probably have some other questions and stuff. So it, it, this is going to be fun. I'm looking forward. All to right. It. So, all right. Before I get into that, like too far though, a little bit of background about who you are, how you became a pilot in the Coast Guard search and rescue, how did, where and how did all that start? Yeah, well, I um, believe it or not, I went to school to be a teacher. Uh, I have a Bachelor of Science in uh, Elementary Education uh, from Martin Luther College. Ooh. Nice, baby. Yep. MLC, yep. MLC. <laughs> Oh, no, <laughs> yeah, that's it. And actually a tangent, my, my our, our uh, oldest daughter 
is going there right now, which is kind of fun. Oh, um, that's wonderful. I love yeah, that. Just, just finished her freshman year. So she's back for the summer. Congratulations uh, to her. Well done. Keep it yeah, up the exactly. good work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I graduated, but decided I didn't really want to teach. And the turning point for me was one day I had third and fourth grade and uh, I'm writing something up on the dry erase board. And I turn around and three quarters of them are picking their nose. And I said, mm, I guess this is probably not for me. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Just for the record, my, my wife is a teacher and she teaches uh, fourth grade now. So yeah, like, well, I, I can totally relate to any and all the stories that would come out of that. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. It's not that the kids were bad. I just, uh, it just uh, wasn't for me. So I was dating this fine lady named Trisha. And um, so I chased her up to Alaska. She was going up there to have some surgeries done to her ears. And um, I graduated and followed her up there. Got a small apartment, started working a job, and that really wasn't going anywhere. Um, so I found myself on the roof of a, of a construction site with this uh, uh, HVAC technician who said, hey, man, why don't you be a Coastie? And I said, what's a Coastie? <laughs> and that's honestly where it started. <laughs> this pot smoking HVAC tech introduced me to the Coast Guard. Um, so one thing led to another. I, and I signed up in Anchorage, Alaska in, um, well, it was June, June uh 20 or ni 1997 june 1997 so i have my anniversary coming up here in a couple weeks 26 years yeah so wow. off i go to cape may from alaska yep um i went to a cutter out of boot camp um got to be on the tie down team on the you know on the cutter so that ooh, jazzed ooh, me up about aviation ooh, there's a lot of people that don't know what that is oh tag you're it you get tell everybody what that is because that that's pretty cool i like that yeah so Coast Guard cutters, Coast Guard ships have the ability to take helicopters. And most of our ships were quite small at the time. And so we'd uh, land the Dolphin all the time. I was on a 270 foot medium endurance cutter called the Campbell. And uh, I got to be on the tie down team, which, which was exciting. So we run out there while the helicopter is still running and take these ratchet straps basically and secure it to the deck so they can shut down safely. So that was me running under the blades, you know? just trying to beat everybody that was the goal you know you beat everybody to see if you can get your tie down on first <laughs> like a whole like nascar pit crew only yeah on the helicopter go 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 click 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 yeah. click click, click. <laughs> yep and for for seaman bartell that was another 100 bucks a month or 150 bucks a month of hazard pay cha-ching oh, yeah yeah it's a big deal so but actually you know I, I became interested in aviation even at uh, boot camp you you probably remember um Air Station Cape May was going right there next to boot camp back in the day. Oh, yeah. And yep. um, I, I looked out the window. I remember very well seeing those helicopters fly out of there during forming company that in Sexton Hall, the very first week, you know, yeah. man, that's cool. You know, I, I could do that maybe, you know. And so anyway, that's that's kind of where the light bulb started to turn on. Then the cutter. I was only on the cutter for a year because. Uh, the rate merger and high year tenure happened. So I went to A school just about a year, about a year after I was on the cutter. Um, went from having to drive all the way to Massachusetts or to um, New Bedford, Mass, and uh, from, uh, from Otis Air National Guard Base 
and then I, I, I had the, uh, a very short drive over to Air Station Cape Cod where I was an airman. So that's where, that's where aviation really started for me. Went to A school, got assigned to Sitka, was on the hangar deck up there for about 18 months. Got picked up for OCS out of uh, Sitka. Um, great experience in Sitka. Then went to fly. 9-11 uh, happened when I was at flight school, which was quite a deal. Wow. Uh, got winged in 2002. And uh, after that, I've been flying the H-60 ever since. So November of 2002 is when I started flying it. And um, I went to Astoria after that, Kodiak for five years, San Diego for four years, had did an out of cockpit tour, the only two years I've ever spent out of the cockpit uh, with Customs and Border Protection in Riverside, California. Sick. Then I, yeah, that was cool too. Um, then I went back to Kodiak because they needed pilots. So another three years in Kodiak and then here at ALC in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. Oh my gosh. What a great career, man. Yeah. Still yeah. going. I love still it. Still going, still <laughs> flying, which is crazy. Now I get to do all these fun cross-country flights and stuff. It's uh, it's pretty great. Yeah. So I love the fact that you just brought that up because I do have a couple of questions because you've had an incredible career so far. You said 26 yeah. years. That's a long yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. That, that's pretty good. As a matter of fact, come to think of it, you said you went to boot camp in June of 1997? Right. So it it you and I missed each other by only a couple months because I went in oh, January really? of 97. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Mike, 150. Oh, I was Kilo 151. Hoorah. Oh, <laughs> we just like just missed each other. That's hilarious. <laughs> There's stories like that all the time. I'm here with a guy who was in, I can't remember what letter, but 151. And uh, we figured out that we were both in the recruit band together. And he played low brass too. I play the trombone. And I, he plays, I think he plays the baritone. And there's, we for sure sat next to each other in that band. But we never knew because you're like, oh, I'm looking up, you know? <laughs> I'm not moving. I'm not. Eyes in the boat. Eyes in the boat. <laughs> yeah, right. It wasn't quite that bad in the band. Uh, but you still, you know, you didn't know which way to look there. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, that's pretty funny. All right, yeah. well, in your career, before I get into some of these best kids, there are a couple of things that, that I, I have to ask you. Okay. You had mentioned uh, that you've done some cross-country trips now that you're with LSC. ALC, right? yeah. ALC, ALC. sorry, ALC. God, I'm yep. throwing LSC out there. Hey, right. congratulations, LSC. I'm, I'm throwing you a bone. ALC. <laughs> so cross-country trips, what does that entail for you? A lot of fun, first of all, but <laughs> <laughs> it is a lot of work. Uh, so we, we take them all the way to uh, Puerto Rico. We just actually, we have a crew coming back from Puerto Rico starting today. Um, so we deliver there uh, all the way to Alaska. Those Alaska trips take about a week. You can comfortably do it in about six days. You can do it in five, but that's not as comfortable. So imagine all the flight planning, the weather, figure out which mountain pass I can make it through in the Rockies because helicopters don't fly very high, you know, um, and then make sure you set yourself up for success for the next day. So if I land here, am I going to be able to leave tomorrow morning and get to the next one? We have a lot of discretion where we can land that. That's one of the fun parts. Um, oh, so very nice. 
if there's something that you're really interested in seeing, you can do it. You know, if it makes sense, if it's enough on the route, um, you know, to include even seeing some family and friends along the way, if it works out. I was yes. actually on this last one. <laughs> I know it's super fun. Um, this last one, I, I just brought one back from, from Kodiak in April. And um, like I say, my daughter is uh, going to school at MLC, which is in uh, South Central Minnesota. But the upper Midwest couldn't get rid of, of winter time. And we tried to get there, but the weather just wasn't going to cooperate. So we ended up south and down in Lincoln, Nebraska. So sometimes they're just even audibles you have to call. You know, you, you want to do something. It's just not possible, not smart to do it, you know? Yeah. So you end up dropping in to see your daughter at school. I couldn't because the weather sucked. Oh, oh yeah. Dropping too far south. Sorry. I missed that one. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Because she's it's up okay. in Minnesota and you had yeah, to land in Lincoln, Nebraska. Oh yeah. yeah. We couldn't, we couldn't get into Minnesota. It's just too cold. And then planning for the, for the next day, it was supposed to stay bad. IFR and the 60 has anti-ice and blade the ice. Um, but it's, you don't like to live in the icing. I, I, I'll use it to come up through it, you know, and get back down through it and stuff, but I don't want to live in it. So that would have yeah. been what we'd had to do the next day. And just, wasn't smart to push there, you know, just to see her, even though I wanted to, of course, but yeah. And you know, that's, that's decision-making we make all the time in the aviation. Should I do this? Should I not, you know? And hopefully if you get to the point where I am, you don't do things like that. You know, <laughs> you heard that phrase so. there, there are old pilots and there are bold pilots, but there are no old bold pilots. So <laughs> So you learn along the way is what you're telling me? You have to. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I like that. All right. So in addition to that, uh, one of the other things that you've done is you were uh, you were flying around the Secretary of Homeland Security, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was when Secretary Jay Johnson was in office. Yeah. So that was that was during my time in San Diego. So I want to say. 2012 2013 time frame we uh yeah because at the time air station la was still there but a 65 is too small to carry a, the secretary and the entourage and so they asked us to fly up for the day and be the bus drivers so we did that we flew up and landed right at the sector right in the middle of uh, uh la harbor which is it's busy and there's a lot of stuff going on in there Land, pick him up, go flying, go fly him all around the, the harbor. It's actually very interesting. I've, I'm a curious person. So I got, you know, the, the sector commander, the, you know, the captain of the port talking about, well, here's this in, in the port and here's where they're automating that. Points of interest, I thought it was really interesting. So anyway, we, we get done with that. It's about an hour. And he's really proud that he gets to live up, up at Point Vicente by the lighthouse north of Los Angeles, okay? So he really wants to show the secretary his house up on Point Vicente. So we go up there. It's only about 15 minutes or so. And the whole time the, the marine layer is hanging out uh, offshore. It's out there a lot in Southern California. People who fly down there know it well. Well, in the 15 minutes it took to fly up there and then 15 more back, so half hour, uh, the sector was completely socked in that marine layer was just it was a blanket and i 
you know, I had just come from Alaska. So I'm thinking, wow, I'm, I know how to fly in the crappy weather. I'll try to sneak down in there. There was no getting in there. It was a, <laughs> it was a curtain. So now what? We got the secretary. Where are we going to put them? You know? So thankfully we remembered that Torrance airport is up above Los Angeles, just a little to the North and way up high on terrain. So I want to say it's like 1500 feet uh, above the, uh, you know, above the bay. And so we, we got into an orbit up in Torrance with the secretary and just did pattern work, never landed, but just looped around. Thankfully, I had left a Marine radio with uh, one of our guys back at the sector so we could communicate and tell them uh, what we were going to do. And, uh, and so the whole entourage, the limousines, Secret Service, the whole cop cars, everything, the whole thing screaming through town to get up to Torrance to keep the secretary on schedule. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're going around the pattern. Do to do. So when they all get there, we land and he jumps out and never looked back. He's like, not even a wave, nothing, just left. I don't know. We couldn't tell if he was mad or, you know, not even a thank you on ICS, nothing. It was, it was interesting. Ah, yeah, ah, noted. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, that's great. That's hilarious. Also, while you were in San Diego, you were on a law enforcement case where you ended up landing on a carrier. Like, yeah, there's so a guess, lot out there. So law enforcement, that, that's a little different. Law enforcement's a, a huge mission for San Diego. Um, smuggling's a, a big deal on the border, of course. And so, I mean, yeah, we landed on a carrier. We, we were chasing the panga. Have you heard of a panga before? No, never. I don't even know what, I don't uh, even, I can't, all I can think about is some boat that's like half submerged underwater. So not a semi-submersible. This one, just picture your grandpa's, uh, your grandpa's fishing boat. It's an open boat, except okay. maybe, maybe quadruple the size, length and width. It's just this great big open boat with a lot of engines on the back, two or three sometimes even, and they're just running dope. And we found one and we're uh, actually a customs border protection plane was orbiting at first. Uh, and then they told us to be covert, but it's pretty hard to be covert in an H-60. <laughs> <laughs> so we were up high. They, even though we were up high, they still heard us. And when they heard, once they heard us, they took off. So we followed them as long as we could. Um, and then were they we needed gas. No, no. Yeah, I we didn't keep think up. so. No, no. Let's go, yeah, mighty 60. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we could definitely keep up. But, you know, we only have so much fuel. So we had, we had to radio back that we were going to run out. And uh, and they coordinated for us to to go to this carrier. I think it might have been that. I'm guessing. I don't know. It was, it was one of our great big nuclear carriers out of San Diego. And they were out there doing exercises and the sector coordinated. They said, hey, head to the carrier. Really? <laughs> I, I was ship qualified, so it was legal. We could do it, you know. I mean, landing on that thing was so easy. There was no other aircraft on it, you know. However many acres that is, 10 acres of asphalt, it's like simple, you know. But I mean, I was shipboard qualified, but I have, I'll call myself out. I mean, all the, all the signals and all the stuff that they'd give you in the Navy, we're not as good at that as they are. And so <laughs> we just landed, <laughs> I, I, you know, as embarrassing as it is to say, uh, they just practice a lot more. So anyway, we landed, got gas and kept, kept going. 
kept chasing them till I, I might be conflating the stories, but I think, I think we stuck with them into the dark and um, we got some really good footage of that, of that boat getting shot out by a coast guard boat. That was, uh, oh, it was quite a deal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dave Paquin was our rescue swimmer on that one. And um, kudos to him. He knew how to run that camera and he actually took second place in the coast guards video the year that year because the oh. footage was so amazing yeah yeah it was nice. cool yeah man yeah. that's some good times holy cow it's pretty exciting all right so what one more side story and and then if we could get into rescues all right you show up into alaska and you have your very first flight which is kind of a remain over lunch and it's yeah. so it's an rol yep how, how did that go right this is a good story. It's kind of long, but I, it, it so it's my intro to Alaska, basically. So I had been, get, I was really pumped up to go to Kodiak. I had a, I had a nice, a good mentor in Astoria, my first unit, this guy, Tony Clark, everybody called him turd man. Just love to talk about Alaska. <laughs> That's another whole story. And man, you could have him on too. But anyway, I, I was just so pumped to be there. So we get there, take the ferry, we have this whole adventure getting there, and I'm there. And it's a beautiful, sunny time in Alaska, in Kodiak, which is kind of rare. And we're scheduled to have our movers uh, tomorrow, okay? But I get a phone call from this guy, Sean Tripp. Everybody calls him Trigger. And he goes, hey, can you go flying tomorrow? I got this cool mission. We're going to go to King Salmon. And on the way, we're going to investigate this World War II crash site. I was like, yeah, I want to do that. <laughs> and, you know, military wives being what they are and wonderful as they are, my wife, Trisha, is like, no problem. I'll do the household goods by myself tomorrow. <laughs> I don't think it sounded like that at all. I really. <laughs> well, I, you know what? She is a very agreeable person, and it probably was quite similar to that. There was, I don't think she. I don't think she even rolled her eyes because she knew I was excited. Pure love right there. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we head out to, to King Salmon and we, we load up these guys from, um, at the time it was called the JPAC. They've renamed since, but it's this outfit out of, uh, out of Hickam Air Force Base in Hawaii. It's the, it, it was called the Joint POW MIA Recover, uh, Accounting Command. So they go around the world and they try to account for the, the human remains of these people, these POWs or people missing in action. Well, up near King Salmon, there is a, a PBY, Catalina, old World War II fixed wing amphibious plane uh, had crashed on a mountain ridge, just clipped the ridge. You could, they were just, they, all, they almost got over the ridge, but they missed it because the weather was probably bad like it always is out there. Yeah. So anyway, they had accounted for all for, for uh, six of the seven crew. So the co-pilot was the only one that had not been accounted for. So this was a reconnaissance trip for us. We went up there, we flew around the wreckage. I don't, I don't believe we landed that day, although we might have. I visited that, that crash site a number of times in my tour there as they tried to figure it out. Um, but we had, those, we had those guys with us and they told us the story of, of that PBY and what they were gonna do. And, they were just trying to look look around and see 
that day if if it was worth trying to you know bring all their gear out there and try to sift through all the wreckage and stuff and still see you know 70 some years later if they could figure out if this co-pilot had been on the plane which by the way they did uh the next year they came back and they were able to corroborate the fact that that guy was there isn't that amazing wow on this windswept mountaintop with this crash site you know that had probably been picked over by people you know over the years i think um so anyway that was a really cool touch point of you know world war history world war ii history for me right off the bat up there it was awesome well then so then we get to go to king salmon too which is an interesting place so that was a um a forward deployment base for the Air Force. Okay, they kept F F-15s at the time out there at the ready because Russians would co would uh, commonly interfere or come across the ADIS into into U.S. airspace, and so those those were the interceptor aircraft that would go chase those bear bombers around. It was in caretaker status. The base was at that time, so no active Air Force at all, but we could still get there and uh, get fuel get a good bite to eat, get a box lunch, maybe even for the flight home. Um, and so going around their ready room was really interesting. They had a map up on the wall of all the intercepts they had done through the years, pins actually, you know, where they had done intercepts on the Russian bear bombers and stuff. Wow. And, and then the coolest part is they had this, they had an honest to goodness, like pole, you know, like a firehouse pole. You had to go down the pole, you know, down into the <laughs> down into the hangar. That's part of it, man. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. So that's my intro to Alaskan flying. Great day. I mean, it was awesome. Yeah. Oh, that is so cool. <laughs> Yo, I love yep. Alaska. I absolutely love being up there. I I oh, I wish I had stayed a little longer, but hey, you know what? It is what it is, and I'm happy where my career took me. So, but I'm with you. Alaska. Yeah. Flying up there is something else. So. It's, uh, I grew to love the place a lot. I spent almost 10 years up there. Dang, that is a long time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. <laughs> well, now let's get into some rescues. You up for it? All right. Your favorite part. It is. It's some of my favorite. <laughs> it's ridiculous. All right. So now you and I have talked a little bit offline. So here's what we're going to do, everybody. Uh, you you mentioned to me that you don't really totally remember your very first rescue. You mentioned it was a medevac, but nothing really stood out to you. So probably something relatively easy. Yeah. Again, one of those ones you're like, Oh yeah, that happened. But you do have a rescue that really stood out to you. Your first one that was like, wow, that was, that was something. So I'd like to start with that one. And then from there, we have four more to talk about. Um, all that come with, or three that come with awards and then one with a news article. So if you're good with it, uh, bring us down that first one that you really remember. Okay. I think it's memorable because I, I got to do some follow-up. We had talked about, uh, you know, another one where there was a little follow-up and we don't get a ton of those in the Coast Guard where you're actually able to contact the people you were able to help along the way. But this one was a it was a medevac, medevac from a beach in the dark. So I don't remember the time of day, but it was, it was definitely dark out. And it was a report of a 12-year-old girl who had uh, fallen off a cliff at one of the state parks on the coast in Oregon. So we go down there and land right on the beach. It was not a big deal. Um, we actually had uh, a film crew person with us too. That I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll circle back on that one later. All right. Uh, 
<laughs> we had a film crew guy on just remembered that so anyway we land and pick this girl up she had she was playing flashlight tag with her group of friends and literally ran off a cliff because she didn't have a flashlight didn't know where the cliff was oh my yeah. god yeah she was in bad shape um compound femoral fracture knocked a whole bunch of teeth out busted ribs she was not good she was not doing good and from there it would have been it would have been at least a two-hour drive uh to portland from the oregon coast there so i mean femoral femoral arteries are you know pretty fragile and you can bleed out as you well know so anyway they called the helicopter we we landed right there on the beach i took her and i think one of her parents came and maybe a, even a paramedic came along and we just flew her straight over to legacy emmanuel in portland so it wasn't from our perspective it wasn't you know it wasn't terribly difficult except for dealing with the dark but the weather was fine so honestly on goggles it was it was really not too tough of a rescue but we i did get to follow up so i i had plans to be in portland i think it was for a world war ii uh commemoration at a local airport there so i I was in my flight suit and I, I went and bought one of those little teddy bears that has a flight suit on it. At the time, the, co the exchanges were selling them. Yeah. So I brought her this, yeah, I brought her this teddy bear with the flight suit and I got to meet her and her parents again in the hospital and, um, you know, not looking to get a pat on the back, but honestly wondering how she was doing, you know, and just to put a, I don't know, put some closure on it for me, I, maybe. And, I thought it was just a cool thing to do. And it sure was, you know, they appreciated me stopping by and she was going to be okay because of what we did, you know, and oh, yes. that's, that's a big deal. Wow. Dang. So you were, you were like literally went back out to Portland, like within a short time of picking her yeah, up. Yeah. It was a couple time. days, just a couple days later. Uh, yeah. Cause I had, I was going to be there anyway. So I thought, well, I'll just go up and see them. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's super cool. I like that. Yeah. 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 I'm I'm glad she uh I'm glad she was able to make it out of there. Well done, sir. To you and the crew. Yeah. Man, she's uh she's probably in her thirties now. That's kind of interesting, huh? <laughs> that's a fun thought. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I hope she's listening right now. And then she reaches out to me, tells me all about it. That'd be cool. That would be super cool. I like that. Yeah. Oh, so the all right, so the cameraman, all right? Yeah. <laughs> there was not enough room in the cabin for him once we loaded the patient up in the litter and then all the extra people. <laughs> so we left the cameraman on the beach, okay? <laughs> there, was, there was plenty of other ways to get home, but we had to make the decision to do that. Well, fast forward, I don't know how many years, but I'm up in Alaska, out in St. Paul, Alaska, which is out in the Pribilof Islands, out in the middle of nowhere, where the crab fleet is in late winter. <clears throat> and I'm on the Cornelia Marie, and that's one of the boats that's on the deadliest catch. And we connected with the crew, and they were showing us around, and well, here's this camera guy. I'm shaking his hand. I don't remember him. And he's like, I remember you. <laughs> you left me on the beach in Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> it happens. That's hilarious. Um, right? 
oh, you see what had happened was, sir, <laughs> I don't have enough room to take you right now, so you're just going to have to stay right here. He didn't understand that. I mean, it was either mom or him. I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. funny. And here you are running into each other up in Alaska. Oh, that's right. great. <laughs> Man, awesome. I I absolutely love that. The Just that whole story. What a great, really good memory of like a, not a first, but that first memorable rescue. Landing, easy. Weather, easy. A follow-up, even better. And then to meet a cameraman years later. <laughs> ah, it just warms my heart. <laughs> it's a small world, isn't it? Yeah. Totally is. Totally is. Yeah. All right. Well, now we're going to go into the next one. And I'm going to go a bit in order of years. So in 2005, you uh, earned yourself an achievement medal. And I, as soon as I read this, then we get to get the backstory. I'm all excited already. All right. all right, here we go. Citation to accompany the award of the Coast Guard Achievement Medal to Lieutenant John Bartell, United States Coast Guard. Lieutenant Bartell is cited for superior performance of duty while serving as co-pilot aboard H-60-6005 on 5 July 2005. Dispatched from Air Station Astoria, the Coast Guard helicopter responded to a call from Tillamook County 911 to assist three men who had become stranded on rugged coast rocks off Oregon's Ecola State Park after a rising tide had cut off their access from the beach. With darkness approaching and weather deteriorating, Lieutenant Bartell deftly navigated the helicopter through patchy fog that reduced visibility to less than one mile along Astoria's low-visibility departure route and down the coast. Upon arriving on scene, the air crew quickly located the first survivor at the base of a steep rock where he was being pounded by breaking waves. The air crew promptly assessed the situation and began the direct deployment of the rescue swimmer. While hovering at an altitude of 80 feet, Turbulent wind spilled over the taller rocks, buffeting the helicopter. Undaunted, the helicopter climbed to 125 feet, which lessened the turbulence of the rotor downwash on the survivor, causing a more demanding hoist. While the first survivor was being hoisted, Lieutenant Bartell contacted Cannon Beach Rescue and ascertained the location of the other two survivors. This enabled him to immediately direct the Coast Guard helicopter to the rem- the remaining two survivors on the lower rock outcropping, which exposed the two survivors to repeated sea spray from the breaking waves. One of the survivors was also overcome by hypothermia and unconscious. With skilled precision, the air crew swiftly rescued both remaining survivors, facilitating immediate life-saving treatment for the victims suffering from hypothermia. Departing the scene, Lieutenant Bartell again navigated the Coast Guard helicopter through fog and increased darkness that reduced visibility less than one mile, allowing a flawless lower visibility approach to Astoria, where the survivors were transferred to an awaiting ambulance. Lieutenant Bartell's diligence, perseverance, and devotion to duty are most heartily commended in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Coast Guard. Hoo-yah! Oh! God, I just love this. And that's number one. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Sir, run us through it. What happened? 
yeah that was a good one um those so guess how those guys got down there they were partying you know not really thinking about what the ocean can do weekend warrior they were celebrating their buddy's 21st birthday so they were down on the beach partying and let's go for a swim bro I, i just picture I just picture that guy that they interviewed that, about surfing. They totally got pitted, man. That's the, that's what I picture with these guys. So they end up out oh. on the rocks in trouble, and they were they were they were gonna be dead if if the, if we didn't get them help. And a helicopter was really the only way that they were gonna get help because of the rocks and stuff. <clears throat> anyway, um, yeah, it was it was tough to find them. We had to go out on that low visibility route which is challenging, but it's a, it's a GPS route. So, you know, it's what we do. Great training for going up to Alaska. I'll tell you that much. Nice. So yeah, we get, we get out to scene and um, yes, the rotor wash was, was tough on those guys. So I do remember getting into a higher hover, but it was getting closer to dark when we were doing that. So during that pinky time, it's really hard to see what's going on down on the water. Um, And so in that high hover, like it said, we adjusted because of the turbulence on the on the survivors. And I remember one of the hoists, I can't remember which exactly, but our swimmer, who I remember is Eric Lieb. You know Eric Lieb? I do, yes. Great, great <laughs> dude. He ended up physical gripping this guy because the flight mech couldn't tell if he had him strapped in or not, you know? So yeah, oh my from, God. 100, from 100 and something feet, he thought he saw the ready for pickup signal, started bringing him up. Eric's like, I got him. Physical oh grip my god! Uh, I know. Yeah, yeah. But- so for everybody that doesn't know, a physical grip for a rescue swimmer is nothing more than really a bear hug. You're you're just there's no equipment attached to anybody. You're just holding on, holding them with your life and not dropping them. Yeah. And you're getting a and, and you're hoisting them up 125 feet. Yes. Holy shit! Right. <laughs> yep. Nice job, Eric. <laughs> Well done, Eric. Yeah. Cool. yeah. So if there's any wonder why we go to the gym, yeah, that that's that's another reason. <laughs> huge. Huge. Oh my just god. Think, think, just think about that. You know, let's say he put in five years and hadn't rescued anybody, which wasn't the case. I'm just making up numbers. All that time in the gym and working out though, for that one, even that one guy. Yeah. Worth it. Worth it, you know anyway um that's that's scary to think about that's crazy holy shit take your training seriously right no matter what you're doing yeah uh but yeah so i i I don't remember specifically any of the other hoists on that one but i do remember at some point maybe it was the guy that had become overcome by hypothermia and was unconscious somebody back there was screaming loud like maybe it was after he came to or something you could hear him over the helicopter noise you know and and through the hearing protection that we wear in our helmets he was screaming because he was hurting so bad just i don't know the the pins and needles that that happen when you start coming back or i'm not really sure but that that stands out and then coming back same thing you know is bad visibility back into astoria but thankfully we have great equipment even back in the old j model in the in the 60s we still could get back and basically not see him too much <laughs> wow yeah Jeez, oh man. that was a good one though i mean early early in my career you know that's only a couple of years after being to astoria 
story gets good cases i'll tell you that yeah oh yeah yeah there's been a lot of good stories that's definitely come out of astoria um yep. out of curiosity were, were you sitting right seat or left seat in that in that uh i was left seat at the time Our, yeah the, the other pilot was matt gingrich and we were both lieutenants and he was gonna have that hoist i mean i, I don't blame him at all <laughs> i like that that's good that's yeah. good yeah. um out of curiosity, were you guys, was there enough cliffside where he had a really good reference, even at 125 feet? And I'm asking that no. because, no, okay. So for those that don't know, as you come up in altitude, you're, I'm going to, I'm not a pilot, so I, I you're going to have to help me out with this one. But as you come up in altitude, your visual references get further away. So it's actually harder to hold a precision hover the higher you get. So I totally understand coming in at 80 feet and be like, yeah, this is, plenty high but then going up to 125 feet that's like that's doing something now now your visual cues are further back so you end up drifting more right is that pretty that's accurate true. oh yeah yeah and actually right. so i, I can be a pilot yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely why not uh yeah so that's a good point we so we were facing south which meant the right seat of the aircraft was you know pointing west out towards the ocean so not much visual reference at all and we had to be at 80 feet to start with i mean you'd like to be at 40 or something uh picking somebody straight up from the water but the rocks in that area they're kind of like pillars almost so you, we had to be above them and uh and then i guess because the wind maybe was 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 coming off of the those columns too just made it so that we had to point that direct south you know south and then get above everything, which which resulted in that 125 foot hover. And you're right; he didn't have a terrible lot to look at uh, down to the right outside the aircraft. Maybe just some breaking surf over some submerged rocks or something like that, you know. So not much. And then yeah. you know, add to that the fact that it's getting pinky time, you know, not fully daylight, not fully night anymore. So right. yeah, it's uh that makes it pretty tough. Wow. Man, yeah. well done to you and your crew. Holy cow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I can totally hear that guy screaming in the background. That's so funny. Have you had that happen before where, where somebody comes to and they're just like, ah, I don't know. It's, uh, no. I, I, no? Okay. Well, I, I say no. The only time I've ever had it is when you're giving somebody Narcan and pulling them out of their high and then they just get oh. mad. But oh. I don't think this was the case, so. <laughs> I, I can't compare the two yeah <laughs> eric we gotta talk to eric eric come on and tell the story what what, yeah. what happened in the back <laughs> <laughs> oh that's good stuff well done sir i like Thanks. that yeah heck yeah all right let's go to the next one so another one you earned yourself uh, a second achievement medal also out of astoria oregon and it sounds like this Citation to accompany the award of the Coast Guard Achievement Medal, Gold Star in lieu of second to Lieutenant Junior Grade John Bartell, United States Coast Guard. Lieutenant J.G. Bartell is cited for superior performance of duty while serving as co-pilot aboard 860-6008 on 4 April 2005. The helicopter crew was dispatched from Air Station Astoria along with an HC-130 from Coast Guard Air Station Sacramento for an urgent medevac of a crewman with critical compound leg fracture from a merchant vessel AP Star 
located 300 miles west of the Oregon coast. Stopping over at Air Station North Bend, the H-60 was fueled to maximum capacity for an offshore transit. Throughout the transit to the scene, Lieutenant J.G. Bartell expertly calculated the Coast Guard helicopter's fuel burn rates and reserves and continuously coordinating with the HC-130 for optimum transit altitudes through a Pacific Northwest storm containing instrument conditions, icing, and headwinds in excess of 35 knots. Once on scene, Lieutenant J.G. Bartell assisted the aircraft commander in maintaining situational awareness by providing clearance advisories to keep the Coast Guard helicopter clear of the AP Star's 80-foot hull crane as the 700-foot merchant vessel rolled 20 degrees to either side due to the confused seas of up to 20 feet. After the recovery of the patient and the rescue swimmer, Lieutenant J.G. Bartell calculated a direct course to North Bend and assumed the flight controls from the aircraft commander for the return of the flight in complete darkness. Due to the severity of the patient's injuries, the flight surgeon recommended flying an additional 70 miles to Eugene, Oregon Airport for rapid transport to a level two trauma center. With fuel reserves nearing exhaustion, Lieutenant Bartell and the flight crew flew the helicopter at maximum range airspeed through challenging turbulence, instrument and icing conditions, ensuring the patient arrived in Eugene and received the specialized treatment needed to save the injured leg. Lieutenant J.G. Bartell's diligence, perseverance, and devotion to duty are most heartily commended in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Coast Guard. Yes, 300 miles offshore. That is crazy. That is a long way. Yes. Thankfully, the SAR controllers told them to sail straight for North Bend. So by the time we got there, they were a little closer. You know, that that uh, at the time, that was in the J model. So less fancy avionics and fuel calculations possible. So that was all manually done at the time. With, uh, with tables. I totally uh, remember having to do that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we still double check it here and there, but we get pretty reliant on the computer system that's in the aircraft now. So anyway, all of this was done manually and that was really stressed in our early training. And this was early in my career too, but how to make those calculations, what altitude to fly at for the best performance in fuel burn, that was a pretty big deal. Um, it, it still is today, although it's easier to do today. Um, yeah, medevac is one of the things that we do best in the Coast Guard. It happens all the time for us. And, um, you know, not the most glamorous work, but it's it's good, honest work. I'll tell you that. It's, uh, it takes a lot to, like you said, 300 miles offshore initially, and we're going to be able to do it with the fuel that we have. And uh, it, I think this case highlights really well, too, how two aircraft can really get the mission done. So having a C-130 along on a SAR case is, is really important. I, I read the write-up that the, that the other pilot wrote, this guy, uh, Captain Eric Smith, if you please, the CEO of oh. Miami right now. Yeah, uh, he did a nice write-up of this to, you know, to go before the awards board and was talking about all the, all the planning and stuff that had to go into it. Um, yeah, it takes a lot to, to, to make it all the way out to something like that. Um, but it's 
oh, the partnership is what I was talking about. But so having the C-130 check different flight levels, not, well, not flight levels, but different altitudes for the, for the helicopter. Where's the wind the best? Is there icing? And we relied on them for, for icing reports, but they forgot to turn on their landing lights. So they didn't see the visible moisture. So they, they said, oh yeah, it's fine up at 6,000. Well, it's raining <laughs> and it's cold. So now we have to turn on all our gear. Anyway, that was kind of funny. It's still really great to have them along and uh, communicate with the vessel. So what the, one of the nice things they can do is communicate the vessel and get them set up for the hoist so that once we get there, the ship is ready to go on, on a good heading and they've got everybody's aged so that we spend the minimum amount of time having to hover because uh, when you're that far out, you're really concerned about timing and can we get yeah. back? And on this one, as it turned out, we were able to make enough wise decisions about uh you know altitudes and airspeeds and stuff that we were able to instead of dropping them off right at north bend we were able to fly past north bend eastbound and get them to eugene to look to that level two trauma center that the award mentioned which is a big deal a drive from yeah. eugene you know to out to the coast is probably pretty long so that might have been the difference between his life or, or, or not i'm not really sure but i mean get him to the highest level of care is always the goal Oh man, that that's awesome. There's a couple of things that really stand out this in this case to me um, overall. And one of them is, you know, I, as a guy in the back, um, you know, I, I'm part of the air crew, you know, but I'm not flying the aircraft for you guys up front flying and calculating all the different stuff that you're talking about as far as, Oh, we need to come up in altitude because there's a bit of a tailwind there, or, you know, the, the headwind is slower. It's, it's, 15 knots or 20 knots at this altitude, but it's only 10 knots down at this altitude. There's a lot of calculations to go into that. And for a 300 mile flight, that is, that's a lot of work to be doing throughout. Um, the fuel burn I used to do, I used to do that as well. Yeah. And I remember yeah. it so well. <laughs> then uh, Russ Zulik would call me out all the ah. time. Thank you, Mr. Russ Zulik. <laughs> Absolutely. But again, there's, there's just a lot of work that needs to be done. So the fact that you were able to get there, the other one is communicating with the C-130. Again, I used to do that up in Alaska. You probably did that in Alaska quite a bit as well. But yep. to have them set the boat up to where they're already positioned a certain way into the wind. So you roll up on scene, right into your checklist, and boom, you're sending the guy out, the swimmer out to go get him. That's yep. brilliant. I like, that. Uh, I like that a lot. It's really great. There's, I mean, we do it quite, quite often, actually. Um, it's a, it's a good team effort. You know, it's not unlike the air force, you know, the air force tankers even with their sixties and C one thirties. So we don't have that partnership, but, but definitely the comms is a big deal. And then just trying to keep your radio guard can be really hard when you're low level in the helicopter and just to be able to talk to those guys on UHF and have them relay any comms back to whoever's controlling the SAR case, really important. I can think of actually. So, do you remember when the C-130s got their new uh, synthetic aperture radar that could also overlay AIS, uh, the AIS plot? Do you remember that oh, at all? No, I did not. So, Ooh, so that's cool. Yeah. So late in my tour, the first one in Kodiak, they got that capability on the C-130, and it was a the, the mission was another medevac off of a cruise ship, and. So we go fly and it was, uh, I think it was like 200 miles Southwest of Kodiak. Um, 
we had fuel options at Sitkanak Island. You remember Sitkanak way on the uh -huh. southwest end? Yeah. yeah. So we, we weren't sweating the fuel too bad because we knew we could land back there if we had to. <clears throat> but the day was, it was actually really sunny, except for these isolated snow squalls that you could totally see and fly around. But of course, when we got to the boat, it was a, the, the Zondam. I still remember the Zondam. <laughs> what a good name. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we get there and of course the ship is in one of the squalls. All right. But we had a Herc along that could use their weather radar as well as the AIS plot so they could see the, where the ship was relative to, to the snow squall and could give them a heading to get out of the snow squall so we wouldn't have to hoist in the snow. It was oh, really awesome. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That was fantastic. Yeah. So anyway, the partnership is a good one for sure. Yeah, very much so. I want to touch on one more thing with this case, which I also thought was interesting, is that, you know, the 860 can go further than the 65, the Dolphin. Um, just the range is longer. And a lot of the reason behind that is because, well, we carry like there's five tanks on the helicopters, two internal tanks and then three external tanks. And you can always put a bigger external tank on the right side, right? Yeah, yeah. But you guys flew from Astoria, Oregon, south on the coast to Air Station North Bend, which is in Coos yeah. Bay, Oregon. Then yeah. from there, straight out. So for those that don't know, like you have to actually calculate in a direction of a straight line from point A to point B. And to, mm -hmm. to have to go down to refuel to then go out. So that actually makes it even further than 300 nautical miles from Astoria. So that was 300 That's miles true. from North Bend. That's right. That's true. That's, yep. That's a, long it's a lot of flying. Yeah, I, I think we flew. I think we flew over eight hours that day. I I remember oh, looking wow. at my. Yeah, it was it was eight somewhere in the neighborhood of eight hours. Yeah. Excuse me. Um, the nice thing too is most SAR controllers now know too though that wherever the helicopter is leaving from is where you send the vessel. So if it's a big vessel like that, you send them to North Bend. And then, because then the helicopter, it's closing the distance all the time for the helicopter. Yeah. You know, I, I've seen cases before where that didn't happen. There was one, I, I wasn't on it, but one of our crews ended up picking a guy up west of Attu, which is way on the west end of the Aleutian chain up in Alaska, because the SAR controllers didn't stop the vessel. They should have had him stop in, in uh, Dutch Harbor or, or at somewhere. But the helicopter had to keep flying west because they didn't turn the vessel <laughs> or the vessel oh, wouldn't turn no. itself. But but I mean, if they want somebody medevaced off, shouldn't they do all they can to help the person yeah. pull into a bay or at least make for the closest port so the aircraft can get the person off? If there's any SAR controllers listening, that's what you should do. <laughs> <laughs> help a brother out here. Come on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. Well, well done to you and your crew. Um, again, all the calculations and all the, the flying. There's a lot of there's a lot that goes into that that type of rescue that far out. Absolutely. So, yep. Well done, sir. Well done. All right, I'm gonna bring you to the next one. I'm excited. So this all one right. right here is uh, let's see, you were up in Alaska for this one, and actually, let me start with there is a article uh, written in. Let me find it. The DV. IDS, the Defense Visual Information Distribution Service. That's a yeah. mouthful. 
They call it divids. Just call it divids. Divids. The divids. Yeah. And in the divids, and you can find this <laughs> online, um, Anchorage, Alaska, United States. It says, courtesy of the United States Coast Guard, District 17, Anchorage, Alaska. The 112-foot fishing vessel, Mar Gun, is pounded by surf as it sits aground on Staraya. I, th- I think it's Staraya Beach. I'm going to go with that. Off St. Yeah. George Island on March 5th, 2009. Coast Guard and civilians are, res- are responding to remove the fuel on board before the hull is breached and the sensitive marine habitat is affected. So this is cool that uh, somebody shot a couple different videos at night, you doing the rescue, and then the next day, uh, sun's out and the boat's on its side getting just hammered by the waves. Now, the next cool part is here's the write-up or the award write-up, I should say. Citation to accompany the award of the Coast Guard Combination Medal to Lieutenant John D. Bartell, United States Coast Guard. Lieutenant Bartell is cited for outstanding achievement while serving as aircraft commander aboard the Coast Guard H-60-6005 on 05 March 2009. Lieutenant Bartell and crew were awoken and directed to launch from St. Paul, Alaska in response to the fishing vessel Mar Gun, which was reported hard aground and taking on water near St. George Island, Alaska. Despite encountering damaging winds and drifting snow, the crew raced to the hangar, prepared the aircraft for launch, and were airborne without delay. Once airborne, Lieutenant Bartell and crew battled through the moonless light in in 200-foot cloud ceilings, 12-mile visibility, snow squalls, gusty 50-knot winds, and icing conditions to locate the the stricken vessel. Arriving on scene, the, the fishing vessel Mar Gun was found hard aground and taking on water, listing 30 degrees to port with breaking seas washing over the vessel's deck. Lieutenant Bartell immediately established communications with the captain of the fishing vessel Mar Gun and began to assess the status of the crew and establish the assistance they required. As 22-foot seas continued to rock his stricken vessel, the captain made the decision for the entire crew to abandon ship. After a thorough and expert assessment of the vessel's tangled rigging and extreme environmental conditions, Lieutenant Bartell decided to directly hoist each mariner in the basket, minimizing the aircraft and survivor's exposure to the breaking surf. Lieutenant Bartell then flawlessly performed vital safety pilot duties, providing crucial accessories to the pilot at the controls to enable the speedy and safe recovery of the Margun's entire crew. His professional and decisive actions were instrumental in the saving the lives of five mariners in distress. Lieutenant Bartell's dedication, judgment, and devotion to duty are most heartily commended in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Coast Guard. Yes! <laughs> So the video is super cool, which I'm I'm excited that I get to share this with everybody. So you guys have to go on to Instagram or social media, go check the video out. Um, but yeah, that boat is totally listing on its side. You guys had to do it in the dead of night, pitch black. Like I can't believe the video even came out. I can't believe you could see it. So I know. You guys are already at St. Paul, which is the my island in the middle of the Bering Sea. Yep. And uh and the Mayday is called. 
I love it. Yeah. It, so there's a line in there. Encount despite encountering damaging winds and drifting snow, the crew raced to the hangar. So that's just to get to the hangar. <laughs> and you know you've been out there, right? Oh yes, yes. That's no cakewalk. No, no. You <laughs> the snowdrifts come in about 20 minutes. It starts snowing and boom, you've got a 20-foot friggin' snowdrift. You're Man. like Hit the pedal to metal, it's blasted. <laughs> That's how you do it. <laughs> I know. We're lucky we didn't get stuck in the snowbank out there. Oh, I, I was reading through the write-up that I did for it too, and it still. Uh, we're the goal is to launch in thirty minutes, and I, we launched in thirty-one minutes. And I said, oh, that's, "That's pretty good." good. I said, "That's pretty good for St. Paul." <laughs> I mean, I'm, honestly, it is. That's uh, just to get you got to get your dry suit on jump in the truck pound through some <laughs> pound through some snow drifts pull the aircraft out crank up and go 31 minutes ain't bad oh, that's um good. yeah yeah so you know the vessel was aground and that you, you might think that would make it easier but i don't think it did uh because that north side of saint george island has a great big bluff almost the entire length of it east to west in some places, it's a thousand feet high. And since the winds were coming out of the west and we were on the east side of those bluffs, we were getting pounded pretty good. I remember Craig Newbecker was the other pilot. He, I remember he was pulling into the yellow just to keep us off that ship sometimes. So, oh, wow. you know, we were at the limits of the, of the aircraft for sure at times. Um, thankfully, we didn't have to put the swimmer down. I mean, I know that's not necessarily what a rescue swimmer wants to hear but all five of those guys could walk you know and uh so putting the basket down without the swimmer made the most sense on that one uh, but it i tell you it took some convincing to get the captain to come off he did not want to leave the boat there was no way he was getting it off those rocks though so i'm happy that we were able to convince him to get off that night because it was forecast to get worse and as it turned out the boat was fine and you know, hindsight being 2020, if they'd have stayed on the boat, they might have been fine because the boat stayed there all night. But we didn't know that. They didn't know that. So we got them out of there. And I, I think that was the right decision. Well, you got 20-foot waves crashing into that boat. Like, oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I've seen the Bering Sea, and I, I know it gets bigger than that. So if you've got a squall or a storm offshore, next thing you know, you've got 30-foot waves that are, are hitting the shore and just slamming into that boat yeah and you're already on the rocks you know yeah. you're already on the rocks and so if you go in you're done yeah and, and if it, if there's any pickup if the if the waves come in and pick it up at all the next thing you know it's just getting slammed again and again and again i mean that's right we we've heard it multiple times where boats just get busted apart getting slammed up against the rocks right i don't care if it's metal or wood that that sucker is getting just cranked so yeah yeah, yeah. um so this brings up a, a good conversation piece about putting the swimmer down. Do uh, yeah. No, please. <laughs> so I am I am all 100% on board to send me. Send me down. Now, my reasoning behind that would be I like to have full control of the situation. And I know that I know what I'm doing. Like, I know how to ride the cable. I know how to get the gear down. I know where to set the basket up in the best possible position. So for my argument, I would say, send me down to the vessel at right. the same time it's two extra hoists to do yep. that 
I have to get down there and I have to get back up. So I understand both, but if you're asking me, send me, I send know. me coach, put me in coach. <laughs> it's a tough call. Um, cause, cause one of the, one of the benefits of having the, the rescue swimmer down there is someone that knows how to tend the trail line too. And totally. that boat had rigging, you know, and, but, but with all that wind, I don't know that we would have gotten the trail line down there. I, you know what I'm saying? Like it would have been yep. pretty tough, but in that case, all you got to do is get it down one time, you know, and you just keep doing it. Yeah. So then you guys yeah. back off just a little bit, create the angle. Yeah. You know, you've got a somewhat decent reference. So you're maybe off at a, a kind of a one o'clock position. Yeah. Yeah. I know I, it, you could do it that way too, but we love you guys. We want to get you back and we don't want to hurt you, you know? <laughs> yeah. But that's what I want to do. That's what I, I want to be down there. Come on. I know. Sir. I know. <laughs> I know. Hey, what. listen, I was not on scene. You were, you made the best call. I'm going to leave it at that. I'm just telling you where I would want to be. All right. You know, so the swimmer on that case, uh, his name is Alex Torres and, uh, okay. he got out and is now Lieutenant in the Navy and is a, uh, physician's assistant in the Navy. How about that? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Very nice. <laughs> I, like I said, I just, I like that conversation. Um, it's not always the best move to put the swimmer down. And I mean, again, this worked and prior yep. to using rescue swimmers, when they were introduced in 1984, there was no such thing. You just sent the basket down. People would get yeah. in. So sometimes, sometimes the flight, or if there was an extra person, sometimes the extra person would get in the basket too, which is sketchy to me, but they would do it. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, but anyway, that's just kind of a side note conversation piece. Uh, what you guys it's, did, it, you, you saved all five guys. So. Yeah. It's the classic argument though. You know, and I, I do, I just want to make sure everybody comes back. And that's why you don't do it sometimes, you know? And I know you guys are, let me in. Let me want to do it. Let me go. Let's go. I, I totally appreciate that too. That's what we want you guys to do. We want you to be those. You have to be. So I love it. I love you guys. <laughs> Thanks, sir. Which I could say that's why you don't want to put me in because you love us. Aw, buddy. <laughs> right. Oh. You know, no, I, I'm, noticing a, I'm noticing a theme in these awards. I'm always in the left seat. I never get to hoist. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, is this is this what did you hoist on this next one coming up? Um, which one is this one again? The, this is uh, there's a boat that sank out of Alaska up north. I did. I got to hoist oh, on this one. <laughs> all right. All right. We're gonna come to that one then. Let's get right into okay. that one. So this one doesn't come with any awards. It just comes with a news article, but it, this is cool because this is actually out of Fox News uh, up in Alaska. The, I'm going to read quite a bit of this because I actually really enjoyed the uh, the article itself. But uh, let's see, published on November 17th, 2014, the uh, title, Boat Sinks Off Alaska, Coast Guard Rescues Five, Anchorage, Alaska. A Coast Guard rescue swimmer and helicopter plucked four men and a teenage boy from a life raft Sunday after their pleasure boat sank 85 miles north of Kodiak, Alaska. Names of the people on board the 60-foot uh, Nordic mistress were not immediately available, said Petty Officer Third Class Jonathan Lally, but were from Anchorage. The agency took the mayday call 
by VF Radio late Sunday morning from a vessel. A man heard excitedly describing the boat as a 60-footer with a white hull in need of immediate assistance. Quote, we are taking on water. We are going down, the man said. We need your help out here. The Coast Guard operator in Anchorage asked if the vessel carried any dewatering pumps. Quote, that's a negative, the man replied. No pumps. The helicopter crew from Kodiak departed at 11.50 a.m. The Coast Guard also diverted an HC-130 Hercules fixed-wing airplane to help the search for the vessel. The helicopter pilot, Lieutenant John Bartell, said he launched 27 minutes after the call in low clouds of about 600 feet. The helicopter reached the position given by the Mayday caller 45 minutes later at 12.35 p.m., but the vessel had drifted, Bartlett said. We just set our navigation system to the point right at the position he gave, Bartlett said. I think he drifted about a half mile or a mile to the east. The people in the life raft saw the, saw the helicopter before the crew saw them. Bartell had the helicopter pointing north, and the hoist operator, flight mechanic Devin Lloyd, spotted a red star flare fired from the raft. The helicopter crew found the Nord Nordic Mistret was partially submerged. All five people on board and had donned red suits and boarded the life raft. The eight by eight foot life raft was bobbing in six foot seas with winds blowing at about 15 miles an hour. Bartell lowered the helicopter just 12 to 15 feet from the water and the rescue swimmer, Petty Officer Rafael Aguero, jumped in. It's, quote, it's the most expedition deployment we have, Bartel said, and only allowing during daylight rescues. Aguero swam to the raft. The plan was to swim each survivor away from the raft and into the rescue basket, dangling from the helicopter. That way we don't have everybody in the water at the same time, spreading apart, potentially, Bartlett said. The first rescue, a 14-year-old boy, was most challenging, he said, adding the boy was a little bit scared. <laughs> he was a big kid, though. He was definitely making our rescue swimmer work to get away from the raft and into the basket, Bartlett said. After that, the crew got into a rhythm, Bartlett said. Aguero swam four men to the basket, one by one, and Lloyd hoisted them into the helicopter. Lieutenant Vincent Jansen was the second pilot on board. The five rescued people were flown to Kodiak. That is awesome. It goes on a little bit further, but I don't need to read anymore because that's awesome. <laughs> it was a good case, you know. No award, that's fine. But I think it's just because the weather was, you know, the weather was pretty, pretty vanilla. Um, right on. So hey, we don't so, we don't do it for the awards. We do it for stuff like this because it's super fun and it, oh, it's awesome. Agreed, hundred percent. Yep, it was a it was a great case. Those guys definitely needed help, you know. And uh, you you mentioned the part of you know we so we did uh, we did a free fall deployment. There are those. Which is awesome. The, it's awesome. <laughs> and there are those in the community, though, that take issue with a free fall deployment when you don't know what's underneath there. Is there debris? Yep. You train it. Why not use it? That's my take. It was daytime. I was not afraid that we, were gonna, that we weren't going to get Ralphie back. So I stand by using the free fall deployment. It's fine. Booyah. 
yeah Plus, it's exactly. super fun for us and it's kind of badass when you jump in and they're like oh that was so cool survivors are like we're saved <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was a good case um you know pretty pretty just pretty textbook you know deploy the swimmer the swimmer gets everybody out of the raft one at a time into the basket get them all out get them all up uh took care of the raft too, knife the raft so it would sink and then we went home yeah did, did it all just by the book um and you were flying right we seat so you got to do all of it i got to do the hoist that time yep that was <laughs> everybody wants to be at the controls including me it's it's fun <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so that case, we uh, that 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 got highlighted on the first episode of Coast Guard Alaska. Oh, what? Oh, that's. So yeah. Cool. Yeah. So ended up being in the season premiere or the, the series premiere of the show. Got some interviews. And so that was fun to interact with that whole world. Um, and then I that was in May of 11. And then we transferred to San Diego just a month or two later. So fast forward a few more months and I get a phone call from Captain Bill Deal, who was still the CO up in Kodiak at the time. He's like, how would you feel about coming out to New York to do some public affairs stuff for this show surrounding the premiere? Sounds good. Let's do it. <laughs> so Al Roker Productions put up a whole bunch of us Coasties right on Times Square and uh, we got to do premiere things. My wife flew out with me and we got to hang out in New York and do more interviews. And oh, we went to the, we went to the premiere of the show on the Intrepid, the, the old carrier. That's a museum now on Manhattan. Yep. That was a really, that was really fun. Um, it was a really cool experience. And I think my wife would tell you that her, uh, her favorite part of the whole thing was she got shushed by Al Roker. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. You know what? There are probably not too many people that can say that. <laughs> no, no, we were just having a good time, you know, in the in the movie theater before the premiere, and he's over here doing some interview or something, and we're over here having fun, and I like to laugh, as you can tell, and so we're over there laughing, and she's got a, quite a jolly laugh herself. And uh, anyway, <laughs> Al Roker. <laughs> oh, but they, that's fantastic. But they became best friends after that, so it was fine. <laughs> oh, that's so fun. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So how long did you guys end up spending in New York? The whole week? A couple days? Um, we ended up being there four or five days, I think it was. Yeah. It was oh, a, it was a really bonus. good time. We yeah. actually uh so we I wasn't on the Today show myself, but I was down there in uniform as part of the gaggle and a bunch of other people got interviewed on TV and so we're just standing around there. And next thing you know, my wife is acting like our agent with the other public affairs people. <laughs> so she just starts giving orders. Next thing I know, I'm standing in that, you know, in that fence line they have at, at 30 Rock, you know, where yeah. they do the interviews outside. I'm standing in, inside there and she's telling me sign people's shirts and stuff. So she's got all <laughs> of the coasties out there signing autographs and they're going to be on the show and what what is happening right now <laughs> maybe you should interview her <laughs> yeah she's trying to get royalties that's what was happening I like <laughs> right sign her up for sag right oh my gosh that's hilarious yeah i love it <laughs> pretty funny oh man love it well well done to you and the entire crew and 
full free fall deployment, sunken raft. I love it. I love every yeah. bit of that. That's good. a warm and fuzzy. It was so. a good case, especially I maybe I think it mentions it later in that article, but uh, Ralphie had been on a case the week before where the, the people didn't make it. And it wasn't, it wasn't the air crew's fault. They just, they were overdue and had, and had already perished before the Coast Guard air crew got there. But Ralph had to see all those guys, you know, and couldn't help them. And so the very next week to get him a case like this with success was, uh, I think it really lifted his spirit, you know, which is, uh, which is important. We got to take care of ourselves that way too, right? The oh, muscles yeah. and, and uh, the physical part of the job is important, of course, but that mental side is pretty important too. Very much so. Yeah. 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 We talk about it a lot here. So, which, yeah, take care of that side. Talk to somebody yep. if you have a hard case like that. But it's yep. these good cases that you come out and you're like, oh, yes, this is why I do this. Exactly. So, That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I do have, so I, uh, on, on another feel good note, uh, I had a case about a year after that, I think, maybe, maybe two years even, uh, down in San Diego. Uh, where uh, a, a sailboat was on a race. They do this race from LA to San Diego, but they go, they go west from LA around the Channel Islands and then down around San Clemente Island and then into San Diego. Uh, but this, this sailboat called the Uncontrollable Urge lost their rudder and oh. uh, ended up on the northwest end of San Clemente, got pounded pretty bad by the rocks. And... Um, one of their crewmates actually died. The guy that, the guy that was the most safety conscious and had tied himself into the vessel, um, couldn't get off the vessel, and he ended up drowning. I think, um, oh, but man. yeah, but we picked up we picked up all five of them from the northwest end of that island in the dark and pretty challenging hoists actually, even though it was on land again, but it was windy and dark and anyway, we got them out of there and. Uh, one of the guys, this guy, Douglas Pajak, wrote us a letter, and I'll read that for you right now if you're ready. Oh, please do. To U.S. Coast Guard Station San Diego and Lieutenant Commander Bartell, Lieutenant J.G. Haas, AMT-3 McDevitt, and AST-3 Kresge. My name is Doug Pajak. I was part of the crew from the sailing vessel Uncontrollable Urge that was rescued late Friday night off San Clemente Island. I have attempted to retype this note multiple times in hopes of finding a more meaningful way to say the words I so want to say. Thank you for my life. That dark rocky shore was a very cold, wet, and lonely place. The sounds of your arrival lifted the spirits of those of us on the ground, and I knew we would be safe in your capable hands. Your professionalism and compassion in what was a very difficult, intense situation for us shall never be forgotten. Once I heard you had launched, I knew I would make it. As violent as the ending of that voyage was for us, I knew I just had to make it to shore and you'd be there. You kept me safe and brought me home. You gave me a place to wind down afterwards and wait for my fiance to pick me up. You allowed me into your locker room to change into dry clothes. You broke the news to my fiance with kid gloves. You sheltered me and even lent me some boots to keep my feet warm. Your service did not end when we landed. You continued to look after me long after that. I know what you do has meaning. It certainly does for me and for those you have rescued. I remember telling the swimmer on the shore that we had, that we had one deceased, but you were bringing all of us home. I really wish I had, could find better words to say this, but thank you again for my life 
and for your service. Sincerely, Douglas S. Pajak. Pretty great, oh, eh? That is awesome. Yeah. That is why that we he, do this. Yeah. That, that he that, took the time to write that was awesome, wasn't it? Oh, and I thank you. Thank you. Thank him. Thank thank you to him. Yeah. Thank you for reading that. Heck so yeah. another cool thing that this family did actually is they they had four flags flown over the US Capitol for us. They had contacts. Well, you can you can have that done, but I I still have that flag and that'll be in my shadow box. You know, that'll be the US flag that's in my shadow box. <laughs> Pretty neat. That is that's awesome. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That is exactly, exactly why we do this. It's not for the awards. It's no. not for the articles in the newspapers. It's not for the books that are written. It's for that letter right there. Yep. John, yep. I cannot thank you enough for coming on and sharing these stories. It has been an amazing time for me. Thank you so, so much. Yeah, I had a great time, Quinny. Your energy is contagious. Keep it up. Sir, <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> I'll take that as a direct order, sir. <laughs> oh, John, when I get down to North Carolina, I'm going to look all you guys up. We're going out for some beers and we're going to swap some more stories. All right. Absolutely. Please. I'd love to hear some of your stories sometime. They're fun. I had a good yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. You got stories now. You have to. I got a, I got a couple, but you know, Hey, that's for another time. Yeah. Yeah. I know. <laughs> this is your podcast. Yours, yours, not mine. <laughs> yours. Fair enough. <laughs> when we get together, I'll share them all. I promise. Yeah. Right great. Awesome. I'll tell, uh, yeah, I'll see you later. All right. All right. And, and with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute to like, subscribe, and hit that share button. I'm pulling chocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you on as a guest. Or if you have any questions about rescue or anything else we talk about here, send an email to jason at therealrescue.com that's jason at t-h-e-r-e-a-l-r-e-s-q.com you can also check us out on our web pages therealrescue.com our facebook page and our instagram page at therealrescue again a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today always remember when that star alarm goes off those in distress are praying for a miracle they are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard. <laughs>